Hello, I'll be reading out of Mark, six through seven, Mark 10, 6 through 7. But from the beginning of creation, God made them, male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. This is the word of the Lord. If you would uh, go uh, keep your Bibles open, um, I, I want to tell you in advance, though, we're not going to spend very much time actually in this passage in Mark. We're going to go backwards in your Bible. But we are, uh, again, this book is all about Jesus, who Jesus is, what his mission is, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And yet the closer that this book gets to Jesus' cross, I think we're finding that he is not only more specific about what it means to be his disciple, beginning in many ways with the first things, uh, we can find our toes stepped on by Jesus. And I, I have to tell you, if you were with us last week, your toes may feel a little black and blue especially as we talked about divorce. Today, we're not going to spend a whole sermon talking about divorce yet again, although if you missed that, I would encourage you to go back to it. It's just as much about marriage as it is about divorce. And, uh, but I had at least one person point out what, I've, what I see here too, and many others have pointed out, is that this passage has much more to say to us than just about divorce. The implications of what Jesus is saying go way beyond divorce and I think that person was right. Our, our society is asking and making assumptions that uh, we take for, take, as, take for granted as common sense today, um, including some pervasive understandings about sex and gender, that this passage will speak to and may correct, even give a more noble vision than some of our, what seems to make common sense to us today. And even as divorce may be in the spotlight, what Jesus has to say in this passage, um, we need to spend a, a bit more time with. We need to apply it to questions that Jesus isn't necessarily being asked. Uh, he's not being asked about cohabitation or same-sex uh, um, uh, relationships or transgender identity or pornography. Um, he's being asked here about divorce, but what he says has just as much to do with plenty of these other uh, questions that we have and assumptions we make as it does to divorce itself. We need to, in other words, um, consider what Jesus has to say about um, our bodies and about what we do with them uh, in a longer fashion than we were able to do last week. That's where I want to go today. I want to consider Jesus' words once more in this passage and how the ethic he supplies, despite what we might assume, turns out not to be lower, more repressive, or more primitive than popular opinion, but much, much higher. In order to do so, Though, like Jesus, I want to lift the conversation a bit off the ground. I want to lift it away from our questions, our burning questions that we might have right now. I want to transcend, for a second, popular opinion and its questions about how far is too far and take us back to the very beginning, back to first principles, back to the sacred order of creation itself. Because, after all, isn't that where Jesus himself goes? to the chapters in Genesis before anything was broken, before anything drifted, before anything got complicated. Just as I hope, um, uh, a mechanic, and right now my car is, Steve is checking out, very, very grateful, and thinks he's gonna breathe back to life, which I'm so glad for. I hope that Steve and, uh, and any mechanic who would work on my car would uh, not base their understanding of what my car needs only by comparing it to other broken cars. And just as I hope my doctor 
doesn't base his understanding or her understanding of what I need only on other sick people. Instead, we, and well, I should say, we also shouldn't base our understanding of sex and marriage and gender on broken things either, even if that's all that exists. If you believe in a creator, you believe in a designer. You believe in a designer who designs with intention. And before we bring our questions and our eye-rolling, we need to seriously consider what the Bible says about how things were designed to be, intended to be. We need to go back to the very beginning where God himself says it was very, very good. In fact, I think in coming to understand what Jesus says was from the beginning, we may find a better understanding of who we are along the way. For this reason, we're going to look at the passages that Jesus quotes in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, back to the beginning, where we learn at least four things. One, sex is sacred. Number two, sex makes promises. Number three, sex has boundaries. And number four, sex is not everything. And I hope you will turn with me to the, the very beginning, the first passage that Jesus quotes. If you would actually go back in your Bibles, you, uh, it's uh, actually easier to find this one. Just go to the very beginning and turn a few pages to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. Beginning in 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our, own, in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea. And over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is God's word, friends. I don't see what's wrong about two people having sex if they really love each other. I'm not, I'm quoting what you probably have heard many times. Perhaps you've wondered about it yourself. Perhaps you even want to that phrase, want to give a hearty amen. It seems to be common sense today. Many of us aren't all that sure why it's anyone's business what happens behind closed doors among consenting adults. Even more than that, it just seems natural to us to let our sexual desires take the steering wheel in life. It is assumed to be fully human, in fact. You need to have an active sex life. Our culture has spoken of and assumed sex to be a kind of physical need on par with eating and drinking. Sure, it may come through a committed relationship, maybe eventually, but then it could still come through a random, casual encounter, or perhaps in private through pornography. For many, what feels good is good so long as it doesn't harm anyone else, supposedly. But notice these words again in Genesis chapter 1 that come before anything was complicated. From the very beginning of the Bible, God presents a very different vision. According to Jesus, according to the Bible, sex 
isn't simply a natural appetite or an animal need, and it certainly isn't a meaningless transaction. In fact, as much as it might surprise us, sex isn't simply a matter of self-gratification at all. Instead, the Bible, from beginning to end, pictures sexuality not so much as an animal thing, as a sacred thing. Why? Well, in many ways, it has to do with the significance, or you could say the sacredness, of human beings themselves. And it has to do with the fact that according to the Bible, as we've just read in this passage, human beings are not just animals, even as they will, in many ways, do what animals do. The rules are different, and the significance is different. Why? Because of what our passage calls the image of God. Human beings are distinct because only human beings and every human being has been made in the image of God. This means that they have been created to know God and to build, in a sense, God's kingdom, to apply God's rule and reign over all things in his world as God's own image bearers. This sets them apart then from every other creature. This is what human beings are given with a crowned dignity and significance that no other creature has because they have been made in the image of God himself and sent on a mission from God himself. And Genesis 1 doesn't waste any time as much as this might surprise us, in saying that this unique and sacred role that we have is tied, at least in many ways, to our bodies. Which is the very first thing I want us to notice about Genesis chapter 1, is that the image of God, what makes, again, human beings so sacred, the image of God is tied to our bodies is tied specifically, according to the Bible, to our maleness and our femaleness. How did God intend to be represented and give order to his world? He says, let's create humanity in our image. But then notice what else it says. He created them male and female. This means far more than God created creatures with two sets of plumbing. Rather, according to Genesis 1, According to the very first pages of the Bible, before anything gets complicated, God tells us something about our very essence is bound up with being made male and female. But even more importantly, something about maleness and femaleness is essential for how we image and reflect God. I realize even starting there already steps on a ton of toes, especially many cultural assumptions we have today. There's plenty of things that need to also be said. But notice that Jesus quotes this very passage to the Pharisees in Mark chapter 10, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Why does he quote this passage? Historians will tell you this passage that uh, no ancient record comes close to this. There were plenty of creation accounts in the ancient world, but none comes close to this, specifically in giving us the creation of women, let alone describing women, describing uh, uh, women as having equal dignity, equal capacity, equal importance to the men that they stood beside. This was unheard of in the ancient world. It was dignifying not only to women, but dignifying that 
the, that God had chosen to not represent himself primarily through just men, but through men and women, male and female, as if the image of God, the glory of God, is so wonderful, so multifaceted, that it cannot be pictured by just one gender, it must be pictured by the two. But yes, only two. Now I realize again that there's much going on in our cultural conversation about gender today, more than ever has. And there is an increasing hostility, you could say, to um, what's called the gender binary. What's described here in this passage, that there is only two genders. After all, it's often pointed out that cultures don't exactly agree about how to distinguish the masculine from the feminine, let alone express gender. And we may not feel like we fit those, proper, those popular stereotypes. I mean, I, I had someone ask me uh, just recently, so I mean, you don't play sports, do you? I, I, I don't. You may not identify as somebody who likes fixing cars or, chili, or eating chili or uh, watching football, and you may be a man, just as you may not feel particularly frilly or enjoy talking about your feelings, even though you are a woman. So much of how the genders are expressed and experienced has been informed by our family of origin, by observation of others around us, and the various pictures painted on movies and television, which means that something that is considered masculine or feminine in one culture may not be in another. For instance, in the Middle East, men who are good friends with one another may hold hands in public. That comes with very different associations and assumptions in Western culture. In fact, it is commonly assumed that male and female, if those categories should exist at all, are simply two ends of a spectrum, and that gender has more to do with a personal sense of intuition than it does with our biology or what is on our birth certificate. In fact, deconstructing the binary of male and female is framed today as a justice issue, and the religious Beliefs that reinforce it aren't just seen as backwards, but as dangerous and restrictive of people's basic civil rights. After all, religious people don't exactly have a great track record when it comes to treating those who identify as the common labels LGBTQ with empathy and kindness. Religious people don't have a great track record. However, I think that there's even more going on in our current conversations about gender than the recognition of cultural differences or a disgust for traditional norms. Instead, I think the conversations around transgenderism or gender genders, uh, in general reveals actually what you might call a growing antipathy toward our bodies themselves. Here's what I mean. We are increasingly convinced that our bodies are expendable things, endlessly changeable things, especially when they don't correspond to our sense of self. After all, there are many today who feel a deep and profound sense of unease with their biological sex, a genuine dysphoria between their body and their sense of self. Such an experience can be terribly confusing and lonely And you, or someone you love, may know firsthand what this feels like. Even if you don't, this experience should at least evoke your compassion, not your disgust. But, according to Jesus, according to the Bible, your body is not expendable. And it certainly isn't a mistake. 
It is a gift. God, and as it were, has given us our pronouns. And as Kathy Keller puts it, no wise person rejects a gift from someone who loves them without at least giving it a look. Again, this doesn't mean that we always feel at home in our bodies, but according to the Bible, gender is not simply a matter of personal intuition or self-conception. Male and female are not simply random and interchangeable. The Bible does not flatten gender, and it does not disembody human nature. Instead, the Bible links our humanity from the very first pages of the Bible, links our humanity, our unique image-bearing dignity to our bodies, to our maleness and femaleness as essential for how we image and reflect God. It gives dignity to the body, dignity to gender, without dissolving it and without deifying it. Could it be that if we were to embrace our gender as a gift, not just a cultural uh, invention, if we were to embrace our gender as a gift, not a mistake, we might get in touch with our deepest selves. If we cherish our maleness and femaleness, we might join actually in the work of God himself. This doesn't mean that you necessarily need to conform to cultural stereotypes or pressure others to do the same. I just need to be very clear in that. But God wants you to recognize the goodness, the created gift of your body, the body that he has given you, your gendered humanity as it is, whether you were born male or female, Looking back at Genesis 1, we find that our design to know God and build his kingdom as bearers of the divine image is indeed bound up with our bodies. But that is not all. This design is also bound up with what we do with our bodies, which is the second thing I want us to notice uh, about the sacredness of sex is the image of God is tied tied with what we do to our, do, sorry, with our bodies, sometimes to our bodies. Again, as I've already said, God has determined for his glory to be pictured, not just by one gender, but by the two. But interestingly, even in Genesis 1, not the two in isolation from one another. Instead, one of the ways that God would rightly represent his nature and character is as the, true, as the two genders complement one another. As men and women image God together, not just in isolation. As like, in many ways, and in many ways, very much opposite. There is a God-intended ordering to the dynamic between men and women. And one of the clearest pictures of it is found in the command, which comes immediately after the Bible says, male and female, he created them. In which Adam and Eve are told to be fruitful and multiply. A command which at least uh, one of the most straightforward implications is is a, a command to have sex. Yes, a pastor can say that. After all, in sex, a man and a woman expose themselves completely to one another. They reveal their differences more clearly than ever. Two beings who are like in so many ways and yet so opposite one another as well and yet still equally necessary to one another. And in joining together, joining together, they do not join as carbon copies of one another, but as mutual complements of one another, loving and needing one another, like two pieces of a puzzle, like taking what is unlike and completing, completing a complete whole to becoming one flesh. Now I need to say, this is why 
The Bible's only vision for the created goodness of sex is a heterosexual one. Again, to step on, step on more toes, in the context of a lifelong covenant of marriage. Everything outside of that is a departure from his intent and is indeed something that God does forbid. In other words, God doesn't join same to same, but difference in unity. And in case we doubted the beauty of that very narrow design, we need to consider the intended result of that design. In the very act of sex between a man and a woman, what is it that's meant to be produced? A human life. Or at least that's the norm. We know it doesn't always work out that way, but just as their creator made life at first, a new life is made to be born between the two. Now I need to say that procreation, again, is not the only way that men and women image God. The Bible will assume that there is great dignity in our gender whether or not you ever have children, just as there is great, great dignity whether or not you ever have sex. There are many more ways we join in the work of building God's kingdom than through procreation, which means that you are not somehow half a person or halfway made in God's image if you are single or unable to have kids. I need to say that very clearly. And yet, I need to say that one of the things that makes sex so profound, before anything gets complicated, what makes sex so sacred is that sex is designed with a profound power. Through sex, it is God's design that man and women, men and women, would share um, in co-creating with God himself, filling the world, in a sense, with more of his image bearers. They do what God does, even in the act of sex. Unfortunately, in a society where birth control is accessible and convenient and life can begin in a petri dish again, uh, instead of the womb, this idea can sound very outdated, even, uh, even repressive. After all, even the Bible assumes that sex is what would create life, it, and it also assumes that sex is therefore designed for a certain context, specifically a monogamous, monogamous marriage between a man and a woman. But when we differentiate sex from procreation, I fear that not only are we diminishing children, we often are as a society, I I have to say, we diminish children as interruptions to our lives, to interruptions to our career goals, interruptions to our happiness or our sexual fulfillment. As the U.S. birth rate has now dropped below replacement rate for the first time, which means that we are not having enough babies to, re to replace the present population. We are having less babies than we ever have as a U.S. society. But I fear that we are, all, we are not only dismissing and diminishing children, but we are actually diminishing what it means to be human, what it means to be made in the divine image, what exactly we are doing, what exactly we are made to produce through sex. Sex, in other words, is sacred because human beings are sacred. And sex is the process by which human life, human beings are created. See what I mean that the Bible's vision for sex is not lower than common or popular opinion. It is much higher. It gives more dignity to our bodies and what we do with them, not less. In other words, 
both gender and sex are sacred. Why? Because human beings themselves are sacred. As Sam Albury puts this, who's an author, um, maybe our bodies are less like playthings and more like temples. But still, procreation isn't the only purpose of sex, which brings us to the next passage that Jesus quotes. And my next point, sex makes promises. Sex makes promises. Now, in the early 20th century, a British philosopher named Bertrand Russell began to argue that sex can only flourish when it is free from boundaries and commitments. He argued a good sex life should be marked by intense passion and romantic delight, and that kind of sex can only exist when it is free and spontaneous. As he put it, it tends to be killed by the thought uh, by the thought it is a duty. It tends to be killed by the thought it is a duty. Again, today this just seems to be common sense. I remember working as a painter, saving up for my fiance, Grace's, uh, engagement ring. And when my coworkers found out that we still had not slept together, they looked at me as if I had just told them I drove a horse and buggy to work. More than that, they were genuinely worried for me. They were genuinely worried about my marriage. After all, as they put it, how could I make that kind of commitment when I hadn't, to put this crassly, kicked the tires of the car? When I hadn't taken the tar- car for a test drive? Again, it just seems to be common sense, and it's one of the reasons that among Christians even, it has become increasingly common to live together before marriage, to sleep together before moving to greater levels of commitment. But according to the Bible, sex isn't how we figure out if we are ready for commitment. It is how we are made to seal the commitment. Sex is designed to make promises. Look at me again, look at with me, not at me. Look at your Bibles. Look with me at chapter 2, just one chapter later in Genesis 2. And the rib the Lord God had taken, this is verse 22. The rib the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That passage is quoted directly by Jesus, not just once in his ministry. In Matthew's gospel, he quotes it twice, if you can believe it. Not only is Jesus pressed on the question of divorce, he brings it up himself a second time. And where does he go? He goes to this passage. In these verses, we find what is the very first marriage ceremony officiated by God himself. And in verse 24, the verse Jesus quotes to his opponents, we don't just find marriage explained, but the sexual union that binds it together. I want you to notice how much of the language in verse 24 is about commitment. I want to read it one more time. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. All of this screams commitment, an exclusive, lifelong commitment between a husband and a wife. Again, that is the only assumed context. It is why in a marriage ceremony today, a marriage is only recognized after a couple has made binding, public vows to one another to have and to hold for as as long as they both shall live. But then where does 
the sexual union? Where does sex fit into all of this? Well, the very first mention of sex in the Bible is actually found in this passage, in the phrase, and the two shall become one flesh. In describing it that way, it's not because the Bible is prudish or ashamed, but because it's actually giving us something profound about the very nature of sex itself. What does this mean? Not only that sex is meant to be bound up with the covenant commitment of marriage, but it's meant to make that commitment. In other words, God in his infinite creativity and kindness instituted for his uh, he instituted his own way for a couple to seal their vows to one another. You may have done this in a marriage ceremony. Uh, you may have uh, jumped the broomstick or stomped on the glass or uh, signed a marriage certificate or sealed with a kiss. But God has institu- instituted his own way for the covenant promises of marriage to be sealed. And it is through the act of sex. In fact, Sex is designed not just to seal a couple's vows, but to reaffirm those vows over and over and over again. You may have been part of a recommittal ceremony or a renewal of the vows. I love being a part of those ceremonies, but technically, theologically speaking, that happens every time a couple has sex to one another. They are renewing publicly, physically, their vows to one another. It is how a a couple promises to one another, I belong to you. In a way, I belong to no one else, and I always will. In other words, sex is designed to seal and renew the covenant of marriage, not just in words, but in the self-donation of one body to another. And only an infinitely creative God could have designed something that's a ton of fun in doing so. As Tim Keller puts it, sex as prescribed in the Bible is a way of saying I see all of your imperfections and I am still completely, exclusively, permanently committed to you. You are naked to me in all ways and I still accept you forever. Speaking to just the married couples in the room, this is why married couples must never stop working on their sex life. No matter how old you are, it isn't, it's not just a sign of your commitment to one another, it's the means by which it is strengthened. Even as so much fights against the friendship and intimacy of a couple, sex is designed to warm hearts to one another, that a couple might experience what it means to be one flesh in more than just body. Sex rejoins the flesh that was separated at creation. It reaffirms, I am still for you. And when that commitment is made again through this intimate act, the commitment itself becomes all the stronger. I don't know if this challenges your assumptions. Some of you, again, who might have grown up in the church are surprised that we would speak so frankly about sex. The Bible itself does all the time. It shows what, how do we want, and in fact, one of the things we see in the New Testament is one of the primary places we can know whether we are following Jesus and all that he has to say has to do with our sex lives. Read it carefully, read it closely, closely, see how often it is brought up and how often wandering from God's uh, design, God's purpose, is the sign that we have wandered from God himself. The Bible itself is very frank. But some of us are surprised because we assume that the Bible is rather ashamed, rather private and prudish when it comes to sex. And depending on how our parents or churches spoke about these things or didn't, it's not hard to see why. 
But the Bible, ironically, is very forward when it comes to sex. It even sings about sex, devotes an entire book to sexual union. As Sam Albury puts it, again, Sam uh, says, in a context where the only sex more and more people are interested in is virtual sex or performed sex of porn or explicit TV, the Bible gives us unembarrassed and positive reasons to actually value actual sex. But even as the Bible does not shy away from talking about it, it is united in how it pictures it. It is about passion and delight, but passion and permanence, which is where the boundaries come in. And turns out Christianity isn't the only, Christian isn't al- Christianity isn't alone in setting boundaries at all. I want to consider the, our third point. Again, sex has boundaries. Again, to the same author, Sam says, it is now thought between 20% and 30% of American women have been sexually assaulted in the course of their lives. 20 to 30%, nearly one in three. It's one of the things that led to the recent Me Too movement, the hashtag Me Too movement, which revealed that our culture, not just our religious communities, have a big problem when it comes to sex. As Albury goes on, on all sorts of levels, from individuals to institutions, the Western world seems to be having a major reassessment of its collective sexual values. If hashtag MeToo has shown us anything, it is that our sexuality matters profoundly. Its violation leads to the deepest emotional and psychological damage, quite apart from the physical scars it leaves. Even on a secular level, we get that there should be some boundaries when it comes to sex. We all recognize that there are some things that are out of bounds. For all of our talk about sexual freedom, we are finally seeing the collateral damage. And that is after a generation that has made such a big deal out of consent. We believe some boundaries are necessary We all believe in some form of sexual restriction, and as a culture, we are learning that mere consent between adults isn't enough. So why then does Christianity draw the lines where it does? Again, Christianity isn't the only one to draw boundaries, and and it doesn't draw the boundaries because it's ashamed. But because of what it understands, sex is designed to do. Sex is made to make promises and to bind human beings together in those promises. Sex involves the whole person and entrusts the whole person to someone else, not just part. It is made to express and deepen unity between married persons in an irreversible way. That's what makes it so beautiful, so wonderful. Is it, as we said last week in marriage, it is less like uh, sticking puzzle pieces together and more like welding together, something that is meant to be an irreversible unity, and sex strengthens that bond together. It means this, therefore, again, why does the Bible draw the lines where it does? If, if sex is a, designed to make promises and bind two people together, then you should not unite with someone sexually if you're not willing to unite with them in every other way. I appreciate how Tim Keller puts it, that in the Christian view— Sex isn't just consensual, it's super consensual. 
in that it is only for people who are ready to give their whole lives to one another. Unlike popular opinion would assume, sex is about giving and entrusting an entire person, not about taking. To put this differently, if you want to enjoy the profound goodness and power of sex, it can only flourish within the right boundaries, like fire in a fireplace. We just started using our fireplace. Um, and we've this, this uh, open, I, well, I don't know what it's called, but it's freestanding. It's awesome. Really came with the house. And, we, and I, I like find like a special, like a, speaking of like delighting in our gender, I feel like more of a man when I can light my fire. But nonetheless, uh, we, light, we, we light the fire here. Okay, so, but often I have to warn my boys as I open this up that they shouldn't come near it. They shouldn't play around with it. Fair fire is very dangerous. In the right context, it's wonderful. It creates warmth. It creates beauty. The flames in the fireplace are free to burn hot. But what if one of my boys takes a poker and knocks one of the logs into the, into the living room? All of a sudden, that thing that is very good, in one context very wonderful, can set a whole house ablaze. Some of us, when it comes to sexual boundaries, specifically the ones that the Bible sets, are looking for loopholes. We're looking for a clear boundary to be set so that we can just test it. We can put a toe on the line. We want to know just how far is too far, but boundaries aren't enough. We need to know the beauty of the real thing. Otherwise, the boundaries are unlikely to make sense for long and even more unlikely to stick. We will always end up flirting with the line or looking for a loophole. But this amounts to looking for a reason to knock a log from the fireplace. And some of us know firsthand the kind of damage that this can do. It's why our sex lives can leave soul-level scars. Why casual sex eventually doesn't become so casual for someone. Why sex so often reinforces a cycle of shame which we repeat over and over and over again, hoping it will finally come through on its promises, and it never does. Yes, sex has boundaries. Of course it does, and the Bible has drawn them clearly. Sex can only flourish in a covenant relationship. It was made to join together, and outside marriage, sex only causes harm and heartache. As Sam Albury puts it, it is a violation of sacred space. Why does God care who we sleep with? Again, Albury is helpful here. God cares who we sleep with because he cares deeply about the people who are doing the sleeping. He cares because sex was his idea, not ours. He cares because misusing sex can cause profound hurt and damage. He cares because he regards us as worthy of his care. And in fact, that care is not only seen in telling us how we should use sex, but also in how he makes forgiveness and healing available to us when we mess this up. Which leads to the final point. Sex is not everything. I realize in saying all of this, many of us still have a deep skepticism when it comes to the Bible's teaching on sex and gender. As high and as dignifying as it is. Perhaps the greatest reason for this is as a culture, we haven't just made sex an animalistic passion or need. 
or a meaningless transaction. We have made sex a matter of identity. As much as a part of who we are as what you would put on a driver's license. In fact, you might say we have intertwined our deepest sense of self and fulfillment to our sexual desires. Our attractions or orientations today define us in ways they have defined no other generation. You might even say that our search for sexual freedom has become a search for ourselves. And so, sexual freedom becomes not just a right to defend, but the right to defend, the only way of really knowing who I am. It's no wonder our culture is finding and prides itself on finding ever more creative ways to cross whatever boundaries might have hindered us before. After all, if my personal sexual desires are who I am, if they are supreme markers of my identity as our culture has made them, if sexual fulfillment is the only way to real fulfillment as it is often claimed, then sexual freedom isn't just a right, it is a duty. As often put, I need to be free to be me. It's why a sermon on sex for many of us can seem like an assault on our deepest identities. And it's why as Christians we need to be careful when we speak about sex. When we we speak about those who identify uh, with an orientations of same-sex orientation or transgender, we need to be very, very careful because in defining biblical boundaries, we can unintentionally, we can unintentionally say that some are uniquely deserving of the wrath of God, the judgment of God, while others are closer to him. We can unintentionally assault people's identities while we are trying to correct their behavior. The Bible, though, does it, well, it uh, doesn't do either. I, I want to look, it doesn't, uh, I want to notice again, the Bible, again, won't go so far as to say that our sexual identity, that our sexual behavior and identities is made to be our primary identity. It won't go that far. In fact, it will say nothing like it, but it also won't be overly cruel and isolating. It won't delegate out certain people who we can't understand, who have, um, certain sins that we cannot relate with as uniquely deserving of wrath and distaste. It will not do either. Instead, the Bible does something much more, much different. I want, again, though, to be the first to admit that Christians haven't always gotten this right. It grieves me to say that many of those who claim to be Christians can be very ugly in how they speak of these things, motivated more by a sense of self-righteousness and disgust than a love for God and neighbor. Christians like me can often preach grace and fail to embody it. Just as I think many religious people, even Christians, can uh, err on the other side, not being clear on the boundaries the Bible does say, uh, give us, boundaries that are drawn out of God's own love. And yet, I also want you to know that sex makes a terrible place to ground your identity. Even as the Bible, in so many ways, raises the significance of sex you need to know that it also relativizes it. It is not everything and cannot be everything for you. Whether with one or a thousand partners, you will not find yourself. Sex cannot ultimately come through on its promises. 
Instead, the Bible says something more profound, something better, that sex itself isn't everything because sex is made as only a signpost, a signpost of the one we were made for, God himself. In fact, the very one who defended the sacredness of God's design for sex never had it. In fact, the one who defended marriage never was. Jesus himself, in defending sex and its boundaries, offered something better, a place to root your identity that would not fail you, a dignity that could be yours whether you are single, married, widowed, divorced, or it's complicated, a belonging that was made only to be found in him. The Bible assumes that that our identities are meant to be rooted in something more stable, and that is the love of Jesus Christ himself, which means no matter your background, you can find a new start in him. I realize some of us, even in here, you are wondering to yourself, this church has no idea of what my past has been or what even took place last night. There is no way the grace of Christ could be for me. I want you to know if the grace that is promised in Christ is true, there is a new start no matter how you entered this space. One of my favorite passages, in fact, comes from 1 Corinthians 6, right after a passage in which Paul calls his audience to remember that their body, your body is not your own. It has been bought at a price if you are a Christian. Some of us need to hear that. Your body is not your own. Still, Paul included an unexpected comfort along the way to those who had come with only a track record of sexual wrongs those who were sexually active, you might say, in all the wrong places. What does he say in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11? And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. No matter the baggage you come with, If you think you have disqualified yourself from the the grace that God offers, think again. God wants you to walk in holiness and in joy. He draws the boundaries out of love. And today, walk in freedom. Root your identity somewhere else. Do you hear that? In Jesus, there is forgiveness and healing for you, a new start from you, for you. But even more importantly, a reason to finally say no to the porn, to finally break things off with them to find great dignity and fulfillment in your singleness, whether or not you ever have sex again. Because in Jesus, you have found the very thing that sex was pointing forward to, the love relationship we were made for with God himself forever. And church, let me ask you, are we a church that models what this looks like, that models a sexual counterculture in our community? I have to tell you, it takes more than just men and women refraining from sex before marriage. It takes more than just making the boundaries clear, although that is certainly to be the case. But it also involves incorporating the unmarried, whether the single or the widowed or the divorced or the never married, into our community into close friendships with both sexes and nurturing relationships with children. As Tim Keller points out, it it also includes welcoming and valuing people who experience same-sex attraction, as well as those who have struggled with issues of sex and gender. Offering humility, 
patience and love, as well as help to walk with us in holiness. Offering hope to those who are very much like us. All of us, according to the Bible, are sexually broken. All of us need forgiveness and healing. And all of us can find it in him. Especially for those who come and find that the calling of the gospel means lifelong chastity. Such a calling is a lonely calling. Church, do we offer a compelling alternative to what is readily available in the culture? A family who will surrender what the culture says they need to be themselves? How might you encourage in your relationships those around you who need family from you, who need deep level friendships, who can find and be reminded of the identity you have in Christ, even if it means dying to themselves, surrendering everything that the, bio, that the culture says they need to have to be happy, to be fulfilled, to be fully human, reminding them they have their fulfillment in Christ right now, immediately available. And it's only found through the gospel that he once preached, a gospel that brings whole, wholeness and healing to us all, that gives us, in sense, all the same story. And ultimately, there will come a day where man is not given in marriage at all, where sex itself may cease to exist, and we stand before the one who our hearts were made for, and we're not going to miss it. Friends, let's go to the Lord, though, in prayer. We need your help, Lord. I even, as saying these things, I think some of us are, are just quick to write me off, write, to, write the, Bible off to, uh, the Bible off. I pray that we wouldn't. I pray that we would trust you, that we would see, we would be honest about all the things that we are trying to uh, accomplish, to find in our sex lives that cannot be found there and to find them instead in Christ, to confess he is Lord, to trust him even in this, that it is a good word, that his boundaries are from love. And for those of us also who... Um, may not presently struggle in such ways. Would we prayerfully care for and welcome and love those who do? Would we create in our church a counterculture, a sexual counterculture a, that will be the stench of death to some, but the scent of life to many, especially as our culture faces the collateral damage of its claims? Would we be the place that welcomes many to find a new start in Christ and finds reason to leave behind our passions, saying that in Jesus we have found something truer and better, something actually satisfying, and he is the one we all long for and cry, cry even now, return, Lord Jesus. And it's for his sake we pray. Amen.